Hi, welcome to Ask Freudina. I'm Freudina, a.k.a. Dr. Allison Fight. I've been a psychoanalyst for many years, and in this podcast, I'll do my best to use that experience to answer specific questions from callers and explain how that same advice can usually apply to you, the listener. Our first season will cover the phenomenon of enactments. I hope you enjoy. Before we get into the calls, I just want to mention that with all the episodes we'll be releasing, there will be an accompanying mini-episode we're calling ShrinkThink, in which I give a more technical, theoretical, and detailed explanation of the concepts I'll be discussing in the main episodes. We wanted to separate those parts from the main episodes so we don't bore you with the information, but if that sounds like the type of thing you'd be interested in, try listening to episode one of ShrinkThink and then coming back here for the calls. In today's podcast, we will see how choice and autonomous decision-making are not actually possibilities when we are under emotional strain. Of course, we like to believe that we are all capable of choosing what to do, but we will hear from callers who feel doomed to repeat the scripts available to them, and we will give advice which allows them to see the social scripts they have been performing unhappily for many years, and allow them to develop others, which enable new choices and options for their future. Hi, Freudina. I'm a 42-year-old man living in Brooklyn. I'm a software engineer at a financial firm, and I'm having a big problem with one of my coworkers. He and I have similar skills, and we work on similar projects, and he, uh, he just seems to think of me as his enemy. He's always trying to get the most important projects, and whenever he and I work together on something, he always tries to make it look like he did all the work. I'm not worried that this is going to impact my performance review or my chances of getting a promotion or anything like that because it's clear to me that our manager doesn't fall for his BS. It's just that it's getting to the point that I hate showing up for work in the morning. I've tried to make friends with the guy by asking him to get a beer with me after work, and I try to talk to him about his kids, things like that, but he always says no to the beers, and he always acts like he's too busy to chat. Is there something I can do to make this better, or should I just start looking for a different place to work? If you don't find a way to make this better, you're going to find a different place to work? Really? Your boss seems to like you. You sound like you like the job, but the guy gets under your skin. You do seem to get that your response to him getting under your skin is completely out of proportion to the level of emotionality most people feel with their coworkers. It seems to me that if people work with people they like, they tend to think of it as a huge bonus, but I don't really think that most people are that caught up with the people they work with. You ask him out for a beer, inquire after his family life, and feel rejected and angry that he doesn't reciprocate. Maybe he is a jerk, or maybe he's just private and doesn't want to have that much to do personally with the people he works with. I really don't know, but I must say that other than his rejection of you, you haven't really mentioned a way that he clearly wronged you. So it seems that he is a jerk simply because he makes you feel terrible. I do want to note that this may have to do with his conduct, but I'm guessing that he might be okay. It might be you that is taking his lack of interest in you very personally, and it's obviously making you quite upset. You said that your boss gave you a favorable performance review, which is wonderful. You're getting whatever validation from the outside that you might need. So why is it that you're so caught up in the tangle of emotions with this guy? And why do you feel so intensely? 
I think what you're presenting is a classic enactment. Perhaps you had a brother with whom you were vying for attention, and despite the fact that your parents always told you that you were doing great and that they were proud of you and did not reward your brother's antics, something about the way in which the two of you related made it more important for you to get his approval rather than that of your parents. This is only one particular example of the antecedent of the enactment, but as you can see, once you look for your pattern in childhood, it will probably leap right at you. It might not have been with a brother, but it's gonna be something pretty close. Chances are it was barely unconscious at all and something you have a pretty good access to. With this example in mind, you can see that you and your boss and your colleague are playing at a scenario from your childhood. So your colleague, who in the example I gave you is like your brother, is vying for success. Your boss slash your parents are not rewarding him, but it is not your parents or boss's approval you really want. It is the approval of your brother. Sometimes the approval of a peer group really early in life is more important than that of authorities, and our earliest peer groups are certainly our siblings. When we enact patterns from our childhoods and certain feelings are triggered in us with adulthood, we lose sight of what's actually happening in reality. We find ourselves playing out the intrapsychic dynamics of the interactions of childhood. What this actually means for you is that we unconsciously act out the patterns or scripts that we're stuck with from earlier on in life. So you're probably asking, what is the way out of it? Well, in psychoanalysis or therapy, the way out is through understanding and thinking through the way in which the relationship itself played out. Once we unpack our baggage, we won't be burdened by it anymore. In this case, I'm hoping that if you think about the way in which you feel around this guy, you might be able to think about situations earlier in your life where you felt the same way. Usually with such entrenched patterns, there's like a series of times you may have had similar behavior and being able to see the patterns will help you find your way out of the emotional maze that you find yourself in. Follow your feelings, literally, and you will find your way out. Hello, my name is Zachary and I'm calling uh, because I have really uh, a dating question. Uh, I find myself, uh, there's something that seems to be happened between like the, the first date and the second date and then after um, I have sex with them. Um, basically, I, it, like, I have a lot of attraction. I'm very, very, very attracted to a lot of most of the people that I date. I tend to date attractive people. And then when I have sex with them, great, wonderful. And I... And, and we, we end on a great note, but then um, the day after, if I hear that they like want to have sex again, immediately I just feel repulsed. Um, if they don't want to have sex again, then the attraction builds and I kind of want to see them again. There's something about, uh, about them kind of, uh, somehow saying that like the sex was good uh, or the sex was great, it scares me. I feel like I have to live up to this kind of first sexual experience. It, it, it also nauseates me. I don't find them sexually attractive anymore when they want to have so much sex with me, even though I did originally. Um, and really what it does, it just sabotages the relationship. Um, the, the, the chemistry is gone and I just kind of, um, turns into kind of a friendship and ends up uh, going nowhere. Uh, I realize this happened more than once and I'm not really sure what I could do about it. Um, 
anyway, um, help me for Adina. It sounds pretty awful. Basically, you're telling me that you walk in to each sexual encounter with the knowledge that the best case scenario is that you'll be with someone who you will eventually spurn. I actually really admire you quite a bit because it's hard to do something when you have the inner sense that you'll fail. And it sounds like you're looking for something more of a relationship, whether it's a long-term relationship or a short-term relationship. You do sound clear that at least some of the time you want it to last more than one date. So it sounds really difficult to me uh, to shower, shave, and dress up. And it takes a lot of initiative to rev yourself up with enough optimism that you go through the ritual, even though you're barely suppressing uh, the sense of dread that it'll be another date that will go nowhere. So I think you're asking me why it goes nowhere. I'm pretty sure that's your question. Uh, so first of all, I'm taken with your use of the word repulsed. You state that you were repulsed by those that find you wonderful in some way. That is really hard. And uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very sorry about that. I don't think it's a huge leap here to say that you in some sense are disgusted with yourself and that in some way, this is connected to the fact that you don't really value others who would want you. So it's a setup of the worst sort, and it seems to have little to do with who you date, as these things always end in the same way. If someone doesn't like you or is lukewarm about you, you expend your time and energy on getting them into you. But the minute they are excited about you, you feel deflated as your own desire is quashed. I hate to bring this up, really I do, because it's an uncomfortable truth. But for most people, finding someone to be with is figuring out how to get the person they want interested in them. But for you, I think the essential question is oddly, how do you get interested in you? What are the things about you that you find repulsive? Because it seems that when others find you okay, you are repulsed by them. That seems to be a reflection of the repulsion you feel for yourself. A second part of this is that there's obviously something about you having to live up to your own self. So you're not as focused as much on the other person. They sound pretty much interchangeable, a series of very attractive dates, as opposed to you being focused on your own self. For most people, that's pretty unusual. They're focused on talking about what the other person is like, what they look like, what they're interested in, and really trying to find the best possible mate or partner for themselves. You seem much less interested, strangely, in the other person as being interested in yourself, your own motivations, and your own sense of contentment, excitement, or repulsion towards the other, rather than wor worrying too much about how the other person feels about you. So again, that makes me think again that this is really about something that you're internally grappling with, some sense you have about being repulsed by your own self. Obviously, there's a lot more here, um, and we're only really beginning to unpack it, but it strikes me that it's worthwhile for you to think about it. It seems to me that the way in which you experience desire is not really in location for another, but rather in you wanting you, you looking at yourself as a lover, and when you're good enough, that being a standard, and not wanting to have to redo it or compete with the former you 
who was a good lover, you seeing yourself in others' eyes, and if they're repulsed by you, you not wanting yourself in some way, it's all rather complicated. But when we talk about self-love or self-acceptance or feeling good in your own body, this might be one of the closest examples I've ever found to how it is uh, that if you're okay with yourself, things work out. And if you're really not okay with yourself, things won't work out. Uh, the good news here is that other people seem to like you and find you really desirable. So as opposed to most people, where the goal is to get other people's to be interested, you just seem to have to work it out with your own self. Other people seem to like you. So good luck to you. And I'm hoping at some point you'll call back and let me know what's going on and how you did. And now it's time for Thoughts from the Couch with my friend, Dr. Michael Singer. Hey, Mike. This is Allie. Uh, I mean, Freudina. How are you? Hey, Freudina. Great to hear your voice again. I hope you're doing well this week. Totally awesome. Another great day to be alive and well during these uncertain times. <laughs> How are you? I heard you're, you're, you're holed up and dead. Therapist by day, avid uh, non-runner by night. You know, I'm, I'm stuck watching a series. I never watch TV except for the news, but I found myself intrigued by, uh, by, by, uh, by a series about World War II that it brings me back to all of my uh, uh, Nazi readings about uh, concentration camps in World War II from many, many, many years ago. And it's making me think somehow about being housebound in COVID and what it means in terms of getting together. Right. So what I was going to say is there's not enough misery by day in the form of, of entertainment. Um, so you could easily be doing something of sick me, but not your bad, not your scene. No, let, let's bring it on and let's bring it on hard. Uh, and it's interesting because a lot of people seem to be leaning in hard into pandemics or other kinds of uh, Holocaust or other trauma related not narratives. And, and that's actually quite interesting uh, how uh, sort of thinking about it in an entertainment form seems to be uh, helpful for some people. Uh, do you have a sense of like what that's doing for you? Yes, a, a in, a in a couple of ways. First of all, I feel like the pandemic and the isolation are probably commanding 15% of my mental bandwidth, whether I like it or not. And I would like to, I would like to be able to acknowledge that and to let it come forward uh, when, when, as my moods change much more rapidly during this isolation. And so we're leaning in heavily, watching tragedies, reading tragedies helps that to happen. It helps to at least give a more kind of sublimated way of approaching this general sense of melees and depression. Um, that that that's that's how I've been looking at it, and so I've been I've been wondering about ways that people. How do we manage to get together during this crisis? Um, and uh, I want now. I think it would be a good time for us to talk about what are the rules and regulations of this isolation. And maybe maybe it would be uh, to me. It's been very interesting thinking about the new New York City guidelines about. What is safe sex during the age of does that, does, totally that intrigue, does that intrigue you at totally, all? 
it, it totally does. It totally does. But I'm actually even interested in the first thing you raised, which is what you're leaning into um, in terms of uh, television and entertainment. Could we do that first? And then maybe we'll do uh, the New York um, City guidelines and, and other guidelines across the country next as it, I think really, I think you and I were talking earlier um, about sexuality and kink and what's become sort of the normative hookup. But I'm totally interest, interested in what you said and you, and you uh, faded out, of course, at the most inopportune moment. Uh, thank you so much for the powers that be that regulate internet and phone activity during this time. Uh, but I, I, I sort of was teasing you as I, I want to do about you leaning into Holocaust and tragedy. Um, and I should mention um, that you're of a Jewish background, so that makes sense. That's, that's your own space to go to. Um, and yeah. then you said something about it taking up 15% of your mind space or something like that. Um, yes. And, and it, it was helpful in some way. Do you mind uh, telling people, because I think, I, I mean, you and I have heard from lots of different folks who are leaning into different kinds of cultural narratives that, that are difficult. Uh, do you have a sense of why you yourself are doing that? I do. I feel like leaning into uh, uh, areas that trigger my sort of sense of atrocity uh, trigger my sense of vulnerability and helplessness, help me connect with where we are, not just in terms of COVID, but of course, where we also are politically, uh, observing something that is out of our control, observing the, the, the demise of things that we knew, the end of culture, all of these catastrophic events that are in some ways related to COVID, in some ways not related to COVID. And I'm looking toward, I think, historical precedent. I'm, I'm looking toward the fall of empires in the past. I'm reading for some reason, uh, ancient Roman poetry now, which I never would have dreamed of doing in the past. And somehow I find it, I find it connecting and attuning and comforting to read about past cataclysms. Yeah, so that's, I think, what's so interesting to me is that we find people are leaning into their own cultural variants of uh, what makes sense. A few might be ancient poetry of the Greek or Latinate variety. Uh, for those of us who are not quite as sophisticated, it might be a name or um, any other kind of subculture genre. Um, any and all are acceptable. Uh, but what's so wonderful to me is that uh, the ways in which we're different, um, in the words of uh, Harry Speck Sullivan, we're all essentially more human than otherwise, whether or not we're going into the most random of most uh, lurid um, sex graphic novels online and um, ideas of uh, captivity and or pandemic or um, in the way it's illustrated by particular niche artists, or we're looking into, uh, you know, long lost forms of ancient Ugaritic, um, you know, this leaning into cultural uh, times of genocide or captivity or uh, real difficulty. Uh, sometimes I think people are looking into natural disasters as well, or uh, some of the popular movies about being a pandemic. This newly, uh, this newly found desire into thinking about the Black Plague, uh, something that was not really studied, um, is, is also, uh, what do you make of that? You know, what is it giving us to get, have a sense of uh, that this we've been here done to do before. It seems to me that there's something about it that uh, we are feeling like this is not quite real. Like when I get into a supermarket now and I look around and I see everyone in masks and I'm also wearing a mask, um, even though it's been a number of months, some part of me is wondering when the joke will be up. Like this can't really be the new norm. 
and for myself, I, I begin to think about maybe listening to these kinds of things or watching these things. It's almost like I'm prompting myself in different spaces to really internalize what's going on and, and, and to see it through different lenses. I'm wondering if that's what it's like for you or it's a different phenomenon. Well, I, what, what, that, what that reminds me of is, I think in this time of so many new rules and so many unknowns, I think the ways that we, not just the ways that we walk in supermarkets or the way we look uh, aggressively at people who are not wearing masks, but also sources of interest and pleasure, it seems that we're specifying them more than we used to do. Like there are, like it is being narrowed and intensified so that it fulfills also that 15% of our mental life that has already been co-opted by the situation. I find, uh, I, I've, noticed, I've noticed, for example, um, on, 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 on sex websites, if, if we're gonna talk about that, that, I, that, that have interested me, that there are, first of all, advertisements for, I've already had COVID, so I'm safe. You can come, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. or, or uh, uh, um, uh, I, I, I would say very specific kinds of hookups that take into consideration the danger, but that we're, they pre-existed COVID, but now mm -hmm. they're becoming more popular. Like for example, there's one in there's one f increasingly frequent uh, uh, description of a hookup wanted: pump and dump, no kissing, no uh, no physical. Uh, mm -hmm. No physical contact required, mm -hmm. except for the specific sex act. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a narration. You mm -hmm. come in. I am there. I am on mm -hmm. all fours. Mm -hmm. Do what you do, and then you leave. And that seems to be so specific to where we are now. How do you feel about next uh, next episode? We just devoted to sex and sexuality during pandemic. When I when I call you next week for our weekly brief. Could we do can we do that does that sound good to you yes that sounds very interesting yes okay, yes. okay so i think it's to... i think it's very important so just just to sum up today's episode um i really would like for our listeners to hear um one of the things that um i find most helpful is to have someone in my life like uh, dr michael singer a, a well-known psychologist in New York City and longtime friend, a person that I actually enjoy calling. Um, and, for those, and for those of you not seeing the video but seeing the audio, um, Dr. Michael Singer is laughing at me. Um, but it's really great to have a friend that you can call, just sort of call up and say, hey, let's have a serious conversation. Uh, but we can also laugh about it and we can be totally inaccurate. And there's no cost to being totally inaccurate and just enjoying the fun, right? I think we're always making estimates anyway, and some of them prove to be more or less accurate in the long run. Right. So damn good thing we're not doing baking here. It's more of a cooking kind of thing, right? Yes. Well, I forgot yeah. you're precise with cooking too. The I am very precise with cooking. I measure everything out way in advance. <laughs> I'm a 23-year-old from New York. I graduated college a few years back and got an amazing job to work out before going to grad school. Um, I applied to grad schools this winter and heard back this spring with more options than I expected. There were two programs that were particularly attractive to me, but both also had major drawbacks. I'm incredibly indecisive, inherited from and aided by my mother. 
And whenever I thought I had come to a decision, my mother would try to push me towards the other and I would chicken out all over again. When the deadlines came, I didn't have the heart and accidentally told both programs I was going. Then the pandemic started and I quickly came down with Corona, which I've had for the last 10 weeks. During all that time, I haven't reached a decision having had other things on my mind, and honestly have started to doubt whether I'll still be able or motivated to go to grad school come fall, or if I defer the year after. At this point, making decisions about my life path seems ridiculous and an almost impossible task. The only thing I really want to do is move to Europe. But I also have two grad school programs, which may or may not open physically in the fall, who think I'm coming and who I have not been in touch with since. What do I do? Thanks. Well, congrats on more grad school options than you actually needed. Although it may not seem like a problem to some, I really do get it, because too much of a good thing is not actually pleasurable in the long term. Decisions are really hard and even painful at times, and many neuroimaging studies have noted that parts of the brain that are associated with pain are also often associated with indecisiveness. When something painful happens, like you step on a thumbtack, you register it first in your thalamus, which sends it to the limbic system, which is the emotional center of the brain. Pain makes you cry because feelings are associated with every sensation you encounter, and each feeling generates a response. Your heart rate may increase, and you may break out in a sweat, all because of a thumbtack or if you're thinking along the same way I am because of a decision about grad school. You are wonderful with words, and I absolutely want to ape your language. Incredibly indecisive, inherited from, and aided by my mother. But ignoring my urge to heap upon you accolades for a well-turned phrase, I do want to take on the issue you raised. So let's start with your indecisiveness and your mother. It seems clear that you already know this, but your mom's indecisiveness was inbred in you from a young age. I'm guessing that when you went to the ice cream store and she asked what flavor you wanted, if you asked for chocolate, 15 seconds later she was asking you to think about the relative merits of vanilla. Yes, your mom second guesses you and my guess is that she second guesses herself. And although this is also just a guess, I am also guessing that this is a pretty good one. But why are people indecisive? And why does indecision cause us pain? People are indecisive because they feel the need to figure out the absolute best thing to do. Part of this lies in some unconscious belief that one is objectively better than the other and that with enough time and diligent exploration, you'll come up with the right answer. But that's simply not the case. Indecisiveness pretty much keeps you locked in place with a slightly glazed, dopey look about you. So instead of the 50-50 chance that you would get the exact correct grad school, you have a 100% chance of doing neither. In fact, picking the right move is hard because for every decision we make in life, there is always a road not traveled by. It strikes me that you are focusing more on the road you could have taken rather than enjoying the one you are on. This reminds us that we only have one life, so if we marry one person instead of another, we are in fact losing all the potential lives we might have had. Obviously, successful marriages are predicated on a certain kind of leaning in to the spouse you did choose rather than the few hundred thousand spouses you didn't approach the altar with. Double grad school girl, go with your gut and with a sense that wherever you go, it is going to be fab. You are obviously well-spoken and quite talented. 
whatever you choose, it will be great because you are going to lean into the opportunities you're given and make a go of it. Call me back in a couple of years if you're going to get hitched. I am sure that you will vacillate back and forth at least a few hundred times. But if you do choose to settle down, let me know. I can't wait to hear all about your career and personal success. First of all, thank you so much to our callers. I hope that today's episode shows you that the particular issues you bring up that cause real pain are in fact representative of other relational problems you may be having. And then many of us listening to this episode see ourselves in them as well. We really appreciate you sharing. In other words, the kinds of things that bother you today are in fact the kinds of things that will bother you lifelong unless you unpack your baggage. I suppose that sounds kind of grim, but in fact, I feel quite hopeful about it because I've seen many people break the patterns that were plaguing them once they started paying attention to their actions. For example, double grad school girl is stuck in a repetitive pattern where she's unable to make a decision. Her internal battle, arguing for and against decisions, back and forth like a ping pong ball, is also enacted with her mother, where a grad school girl randomly chooses one school to argue for and her mother then argues for the other, kind of randomly. The indecision in her mind is partly a result of the indecision that her mom had. It's pretty easy to see that unless grad school girl sees the pattern she's enacting, she is likely to enact it with her future spouse and her own kids. Grad school girl, you simply need to flip your script. Now that you know to look out for this pattern, you can easily pursue other choices. It really bothered me that you seemed unable to go after the things you want. And I feel like your inability to let go of the life you might have had had you chosen something else is really going to hold you up. I think you could just decide to do it differently. Pick any school at random if you must. I'm guessing that both of these are really good schools. Pick one and just enjoy the heck out of it. Your indecision was imprinted on you like a baby duckling early in life when we internalize basic ways of being in the world. But you can see the pattern isn't really working for you. Start something new. Share this with your mom. I think it will be worthwhile for the two of you to have a conversation about how you've experienced the world so far and how you'd like to experience it in the future. I bet you this is the one thing you and she can definitely agree upon. We also heard today from the hookup artist who apparently has little trouble getting people into bed and enticing them to want to return, but his own self-loathing, disgust, and inability to like himself have led to an inability to form a relationship with anyone who likes him back. I'm not quite sure what happened to you early in life to make you become this way, but you are definitely enacting some pattern because you did not feel loved and valued as a young child. Something about the way you understood your interpersonal environment led you to feel that you are in some way repulsive. There is a real sense that you don't like who you are, so anyone who likes you is by default someone you despise. Ultimately, the lack of self-worth leads to loneliness, but perhaps even more seriously, an estrangement from your own self. So the next time you're triggered this way and find yourself initially excited by a new date until the point they like you back, try to think of other times you felt this way, especially if there's someone in your life that you have this pattern with from early on. Perhaps it's a sort of push and pull where you wanted their attention and then once you got it, something happened that made you want to reject it. I feel like figuring out what it was that led from desire to repulsion is going to go a long way towards breaking the enactment. 
and that will enable you to flip your script and pursue a new relational course with potential partners that you meet in the future. And of course, last but not least, there's our very first caller of the day whose reaction to his coworker was way out of proportion to the relationship. It sounds like the caller was a pretty intelligent person, so I'm hoping that the reality check was really helpful here. Rather than focusing on whether you should switch jobs or not, I think you need to focus on why the heck you are so bent out of shape about whether or not your coworker likes you. The advice here would be the same. Lean into your feelings and figure out who early in life wrote this script for you, where you acted like a spurned lover, always vying for the attention of the beloved and being shooed away. Once you figure out what this is all about, you'll be in a great position to reset your own priorities and move out of these mutually reinforcing sadomasochistic cycles. As you can see, today's calls are all examples of enactment. The National Institute of Health defines enactment as a pattern of nonverbal interactional behaviors between two people that have subconscious meaning for both of them. Very simply, we learn scripts and roles early in life and are doomed to repeat these roles and only these roles for the rest of our lives unless we recognize them and make a deliberate attempt to shift our perspectives and flip our scripts. This is for Adina, and remember, your unconscious is speaking to you. Tune in. Thanks for joining me this week. If you want some suggestions of things that might be impeding your life and ways to think differently about them, check out for Adina's Brain Hacks. These five quick and easy brain hacks will give you some insight into why you do the things you do so you can start approaching your life with more control and a touch less crazy. Grab them at www.freudina.com backslash hacks. If you are enjoying the conversations we are having here on Ask Freudina, let me know. Head over to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. The more love we get, the more people we reach. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you in the next episode.